from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. In this classic dialogue, Ken Wilber talks to Michael Murphy, the co-founder and chairman of Esalen Institute, about the natural history of supernormal, supernatural, and paranormal phenomena. Do these capacities exist only in our imagination, or do they represent a real potential for human beings? Listen to hear Ken and Michael's thoughts. This was originally published in May of 2003 and is one of a series of free classic discussions we're making available on the Everyone is Right podcast every Thursday afternoon. Stay tuned next week for another integral classic. I love it. Abs- I love it. Excellent, because we want to talk about your history of metanormal, paranormal, quasi-normal, and semi-normal capacity. <laughs> You know, I've um, shifted, um, you know, people get it more quickly if I say supernormal than metanormal. There's so many terms. You know, paranormal is a term that came up in the history of these things to mark off phenomena such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and psychokinesis. Right. But I, you see, what I'm proposing is that those sorts of capacities are within the normal range of human functioning, and I do believe they're operative in animals before humans. Now, I'm absolutely convinced of of the evidence on that. Can you hear me okay? I certainly can, sir. Okay. Uh, You seem uh, uh, much further away. Um, I think I'm just transcending. Oh, I see. Good. (laughs) It's It's good. It's good. You don't have to let me know. I can, I'll just pick it up from the voice. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, sometimes I just think, fuck this, all this dissent, you know. It's time just to transcend and have a hell of a good time. <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I, yes, but only if we go, you know, together. All right. <laughs> That's it. I'll, I'll let you know if you let me know. You got it. Okay. Um, so... You want to bring supernormal back into, even though it's supernormal, it's still a normal capacity, so to speak, for not only human beings, but as you say, a lot of sentient beings as well. What is called among parapsychologists paranormal, um, you know, Freud, for example, thought that telepathy, you know, that was quite a bold move he made in 1925 to say that he was convinced that telepathy was a fact and that the same defense mechanisms that mediate sensory cues mediate telepathy. But... Okay, if, if that is the case, I do believe it's the case. Supernormal is something beyond the average functioning of most people alive on the planet today. So supernormal is a different term completely than paranormal. Got it. And so metanormal confuses people. So I've taken to using the term supernormal or extraordinary as technical terms interchangeably. Right, right. So uh, the language I'm liking a lot, Ken, and I'd love to talk to you about this because obviously your epistemology comes up. For example, yesterday, IONS is launching this major initiative to start what you would call, I like your word, simultracking on transformative practices, doing their research. I told them about your term, simultracking, and this is the way to go. So just to finish off here, we are going to make a worldwide call for submissions to our database, the citations for which are up online. It's housed now at Stanford Medical School, but the citations for about 9,300 articles, and you can access it through the Esalen CTR website. Great. 
also online, and you can access it through the same website, is the updated version of the Bibliography on Meditation that uh, Steve Donovan and I did. It's updated now into 2002. I think we've got certainly 98% of the scientific literature in English, and a number of graduate students have been attracted to work with me and with us. Uh, for example, today, a guy who's getting a Ph.D. on the let's call it the depth dimensions of cooking and eating. He calls it <laughs> the further evolution of the palate. Ah. Uh, you know, my whole shtick is that in any field of dedicated activity or in any great human activity such as eating and making love, there is an immense lore of the supernormal. And that, of course, I started with golf courses and expanded to sports, and I've been at it a long time. And this incredible connection with the Siddhis and the Charisms and the Adornments and the Magical and the Shamanic Powers. And that, um, so anyway, we're interviewing Ed Brown today, and I'm going to get in doing with him like I've done with uh, the 49ers uh, to tease out these extraordinary moments uh, that happen among great chefs and in great restaurants. Um, then we're going to interview Alice Waters, who really started this California uh, yep. cuisine thing. Oh, in Berkeley. Yeah. And then, finally, can um, the publishers have asked me to do a major revision of, of the future of the body. And I want to expand the proposals I made there. And naturally, I'll be wanting to talk to you about the whole epistemology side of yeah, this thing. That's a conversation I'd love to have with you, Mike. You know, I finished writing Volume 2 of the Cosmos Trilogy. And the reason that I think it's important is that it has direct bearing on how you study supernormal capacities. Amen, amen, yeah. brother. And what we're trying to do, of course, is to say, look, some of these methodologies can disclose these supernormal capacities, and some can't. So yeah. let's use these appropriate methods of, of inquiry and track the history, the natural history of their unfolding. Yeah. And that's one way, a very appropriate way to look at them. Yeah. And another appropriate way is a first-person interior transformation so that you yourself develop those capacities. Exactly. Well, listen, Ken, as I... Um let me just say about doing this revision of this book, I, being as honest as I can be with you, you know, I um, have a personal problem. I've never felt the tension so strong in myself between the urge to simply dilate and contemplate, and I think it's age-related, but I've been, <laughs> I've been teaching this meditation class, and I've never done that, and it is just so fantastic. We meet every other Tuesday, and it's triggered this whole shift suddenly in my lifestyle. So to gear up again, to go back to work, because, um, you know, I don't move at, uh, I'm about, you know, a one one-hundredth of Wilbur speed on dealing with these big books. But I feel that if I don't do it, Ken, I'm really doing injustice to the way that the proposals I made and the future of the body keep developing. Yeah. Both in my own mind and in conversation with others, and in relation to this ever-accumulating data about the supernormalities of everyday life, it's, I tell you, I feel like I'm, uh, I, okay, and... Well, Mike, let me interrupt and just ask you briefly, did the publisher suggest that you revise this, or is just your own natural inclination to kind of bring it up to date? Well, uh, it's both. Books sell steadily uh, in both German and English. It sold, I don't know, somewhere between 80 and 100,000 copies. That's in both countries combined. 
So it's out there. It's doing its, you know, for example, as soon as you make the move to say that of all universally shared human attributes, however you parse them out, which, of course, are inherited from our animal ancestors, yeah. all of them give rise to supernormal aspects. Yeah. Uh, so I put forth 12 sets of these. I want to add a couple of sets, which I've been doing, starting with memory, because as soon as you make that move, lo and behold, you find a tremendous confluence between contemporary research on the given attribute and the ancient contemplative lore. Yeah. I could go on and on and on about memory. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And so I find out uh, from Dick Baker, for example, the lore that's not in any literature. It's never been written down. In, in Doksan, let's say, for example, in Doksan, yes. where the Roshi is sitting there, and he remembers the uh, student's past. Right, right. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, and everywhere I look, I find these things. So, I, what I'm arguing is that psychology never paid its dues the way the grown-up sciences did. It skipped over the natural history phase to a large extent, and we've got to go back and do our natural history more thoroughly. Well, Mike, you know as well as anybody that actually started going down that wonderful road with Mesner and Fechner and all these guys that were really into not yes. only normal, but supernormal, yes. and those guys got marginalized and trashed by the Orthodox. That's it. I want to argue that this thing really got underway in the early 19th century with, with Mesmer, De Pysiger, with Fechner, and, um, but then it got marginalized. We have got to rehabilitate this whole thing, and we've got to remind everybody that before you could get to the Greek state of astronomy, before you could get to Ptolemy, people have been looking at the stars, certainly since the uh, early Upper Paleolithic. They had already named things by the time of Babylon. So a huge period of observing the data domain and by the time you get to Aristotle, you have an enormous amount of observation on living organisms, right. let alone the next 2,000 years. But in psychology, you have to argue, well, we've got our greatest geniuses, Freud, had a database of perhaps 100 neurotic upper-class DNAs. <laughs> Jung had a smaller database. And out of these are built these enormous edifices. Yeah, I know. It's, it's horrifying. As you know, I dedicated integral psychology to Gustav Fechner. I loved that. Yeah, it was sort of someplace right around then we lost the ball horrifyingly. Yes. Yeah, you're right. We've got to go back to some of those roads not taken, which are really exactly. much more integral than they are today. Exactly. And, of course, this opens up. It, it, once you make this move, uh, you get a lot back from it. First of all, you see things that have been right under your nose. For example, I'm having a lot of fun interviewing people about their romantic sex lives. You know, you could argue that one reason for marital infidelity is the mad search for the supernormal capacities of the erotic love. I mean, you know, it's a vast territory. Masters and Johnson never uh, did it. Uh, Kinsey never did it. I've been doing it in athletics and sport. Um, it's just as much fun to talk about people about their love life. But everywhere you go, you find this extraordinary stuff right under our nose. So I'm telling graduate students, this is like being a paleontologist in the 19th century, or you get in a covered wagon, you come north, you find a T-Rex head, and you get your name like uh, Lewis and uh, Lewis, uh, Meriwether Lewis on about 30 or 40 species. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's low-hanging fruit. It's everywhere. <laughs> and so I'm, today I'm working on cooking. I mean, it's, it's everywhere.
and 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 of course it, it has huge implications for what you know you and Arabindo and we have called the descent. In other words, the imminence of the divine, and the um, and and also gives us a better basis to build transformative practices. It raises all sorts of questions. It's um. It's a rehabilitation of this vast data domain. That's um, anyway. Well, it's a great start too that you're uh, online with Stanford University and SNCTR to really start making sure that that database starts building. Let me listen before we forget about it. You were talking about desire to update future of the body. Well, let me tell you why we got excited. Uh, I want this book. Um, Maybe this is just as Ernest Becker would call um, my little immortality project here, but I would like this book to be a better mirror of this moment in history. I want to get that really up to speed. I'll see whether I have the uh, scholarly muscle to go through with this. I mean, this would be the last thing I'd ever do well, uh, like is, this. Is there, I, listen, first of all, I think the future of the body is... Um, I'm not bashful. I mean, it's a Bible of how to look at these sorts of things. And I, I think under those circumstances, you know, uh, immortality project, hell, I hope so. Um. <laughs> well, listen, buddy, I am in the beginning, in the part on method. This is where I most want to talk to you because I want to get it in line with your methodological pluralism. Because, for example, I'm very wedded to this natural history approach. But I need to back back and forth with you my use of this term synoptic empiricism. Right. People like the idea of an interdisciplinary or synoptic or integral empiricism. Right. Your frame is, uh, of course, more inclusive, and you broadened this framework out, and I think... Um, uh, ultimately, uh, we have to well, here, have, we have to have an all quadrant approach here. Obviously, here's where we can sort of take the conversation forward too. You detach yes. yourself from one field to get to this higher viewpoint. I have noticed, Ken, more than ever before in my meditation class, that people who have been sitting in different traditions, as virtually everyone in this class, there are about 40 of them. We meditate together. I tell you people get into this very deep space. Night before last, five or six people were so, uh, were, were gone. I mean, they were <laughs> deep. They were in there, and I tell you, I'm amazed at what's going on. And then, after we sit, mainly it's just meditating together evokes this wonderful experience. But what is also interesting is how we talk about it. Now, what I'm noticing is how freely and quickly they come along with me as we go meta on their former perspectives. It isn't threatening to these people to think that maybe they need to understand what they're experiencing in a new light uh, from outside. Yeah. So I remember back 40 years ago when this could be extremely threatening to people, and I'm sure I mean, there would be all sorts of folks who would be threatened by this sort of conversation about their own experience. Do you follow me? Oh, absolutely. Steve, one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I, I sort of indicated this in one of the excerpts, is at least when it comes to methodologies, there's two kinds of different approaches that you tend to notice. One is somebody picks a methodology that they happen to think is best. Maybe it's positivism, maybe it's hermeneutics, maybe it's pluralism, maybe it's structuralism, maybe it's phenomenology, and so on. And then they spend most of their professional lives trying to explain why all the other methodologies suck. 
And uh, that's just not an interesting approach to me. Yeah. Basically, human beings for decades and sometimes centuries have been doing these dozens and dozens of different types of methodologies and paradigms and modes of inquiry, and they're basically decent men and women with integrity that think they're contributing something of value by pursuing their methodologies, and I happen to believe them. So to me, the more interesting question is what kind of a universe is already allowing all of these different methodologies to exist. That's fabulous. Well, it's just a much more interesting question. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I think, listen, Ken, I am terribly excited by your, this whole work on epistemology, and uh, I can't wait for this next volume. I guess you, you really flesh it out in the next volume. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indeed try, and, and I'm, I'm skipping right along on it. I'll send you the next excerpt in about a week or so. Um, now, are you, uh, how, so how's it looking on being able to go back to the future of the body? You think you can get a couple grad students and, and crank the old... Uh, well, I've got to work my way through this split in my internal dynamics between the part that just wants to be a complete uh, meditator, and it's an ancient problem I've had, but it's worse than ever now. I, um, I, listen, I, that, I, I, I totally sympathize. I mean, there's this whole supplemental urge, so to speak, to just kind of let all of these frontal vehicles go in a certain way. I mean, you know, they're, just, they're kind of rising and dropping anyway, moment to moment. So on the one hand, there's this increasing spaciousness that tends to envelop everything you're doing in a kind of luminous glow, moment to moment. But on the other hand, you want to crank up the relative vehicles and finish doing what you were, in a sense, put here to do. And, and certainly in your case, I think there's several things that constitute your legacy, um, not the least of which is Esalen and, like I said, in the eye of spirit, that you've probably the person more responsible for any uh, amount of transformation than anybody alive just because of the spaces that you've created for other people to transform. And that's certainly one of them. And the other a very big one is, is what you've done with the natural history of normal, paranormal, supernormal, metanormal powers. I mean, this it really was an area so horrifyingly neglected starting around the turn of the century that you've sort of single-handedly resurrected the whole thing. So anything I can do to support that is certainly something I want to try to do. Well, you're a generous guy, buddy. I, I, really, <laughs> I really appreciate all that. Uh, I, um, my hope, Ken, is that I can find the real pleasure once you get in the groove. You know, some people think, well, the descent you know, when we talk about descent, they mean to bring the consciousness into the body. For me at this stage, the descent is just into the mind. <laughs> so, of course, there are those who say that Murphy has yet to ascend to the mind. But I think you can accept the fact that at least at times I think I'm descending. No, I, I quite understand. Well, kidney post... You know, I, I'm working too, as you know, on this idea of what are the essential elements that comprise all transformative practices? And right. I proposed in the future of the body that there's a certain limited number of what I chose to call their transformative modalities or moves. These essential moves out of which all transformative practices are comprised, but they're then repackaged, shaped in different ways by the teacher, by the culture in which they arise. Right. Once you start there, it's sort of a post-metaphysical approach to metaphysics. I'm not denying metaphysics, but I'm saying let's just get really close to what we already know is happening. Exactly. Yeah, and it's stay away from more controversial claims. Again, I'm not disagreeing with those claims. I'm just saying they're harder to argue. 
Well, I think that's another very powerful move, this post-metaphysical and that. I mean, I'm with you. Metaphysics is wonderful as long as you keep it in its place, you know? Keep it in its place. Remember when somebody like Plotinus or Aurobindo postulated the great systems of integral thinking which they did and are still things of absolute unexcelled beauty. They were nonetheless giving interpretations to their own experiences. Yes. And those interpretations are governed by the amount of scientific knowledge at the time, the cultural background at the time, and so on. Right. And so our interpretations of experiences are continuing to add other kinds of data that wasn't available at that time. It doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with their systems. They were exquisite. It's just a thousand years from now, people look back at what, you know, you and I did and say, wasn't that quaint? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we all will be put in place uh, in history, and, you know, to the extent we've contributed, we'll be remembered, but... I think uh, you and I are, are aspiring to be a footnote, Mike. Well, yes, we long to be subsumed. That's right, that's right. And so therefore you get a framework that's coherent, that's embedded in natural languages that can account for these multiple methodologies that are already out there anyway. It's really rewarding because it gives you a way to acknowledge and make room for all these different types of methodologies. When you talk about this thing embedded in language, are you ever thinking of G.E. Moore and ordinary language philosophy? Has that come into play for you? To some extent, but of course what those folks were trying to do with that type of natural language analysis tended to be not post-metaphysical, but what we could call anti-metaphysical. Right. In other words, positivistic and empiricistic in the narrow, right. ugly sense almost. Um, and, but, but it was part of a movement, the whole thing that modernity contributed to um, the broader scheme of things was an understanding, I mean, if you look at the traditional great chain of being, you have matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit, for example. And in the traditional conception, all of those levels above matter were indeed metaphysical. So body, mind, soul, and spirit were sort of like Casper the ghost kind of running around up there somewhere, but they weren't physical. And on that scheme, the human brain, for example, was part of the physical level. Yeah. So on that scheme, the human brain was at level one, and the feelings of a worm were at level two. Right. Something's wrong with that scheme. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So what you want to do, what I've done is I've taken matter off the bottom rung, and I've made it the exterior of all the other levels. So what you find is that increasing complexity of gross form up to, for example, the triune brain have interior states and stages of consciousness that are not above matter, but are the interior dimensions of matter. And this is so good. Here's another, you know, when you make a strong move, you get a lot back that perhaps that one doesn't expect at first. But another thing, see, for me, I've been obsessing on this whole thing of the subtle bodies and survival of bodily death. Right. And I'm with Leibniz, that it's matter all the way up and all the way down. As he put it, that the soul is never without part of its body. Absolutely. Now, now it's ultimately an empirical question, just what the hell is going on right. after death. Right. You know, after four years of our conferences at Esalen, I am increasingly enriched, Ken, by the data that these people are piling up here. It's very interesting. Um, 
But what it raises now and what we're into is the different the models of subtle bodies because it relates to what you've just said. There is matter in these very exalted states. Of, oh God, you know, you get to Swedenborg, you get to all sorts of folks, uh, you get to Iamblica, some of the Neoplatonists, but there's a huge confusion of language and of, of um, so all I'm saying that your scheme here relate and is helpful to the kind of inquiry we're doing on these questions of subtle bodies and survival of bodily death. Well, let me tell you where it ends up, because it's one thing to say that these metaphysical states are interior to matter, because as you just pointed out, there really are degrees of matter and degrees of body and degrees of energy. Yes. And so the next move that I sort of have made in this general post-metaphysical stance is, on the one hand, to take matter per se off the bottom rung and make it the exterior of consciousness states and stages. But yes. matter itself, even in the, in the great traditions, certainly in Vedanta and in Vajrayana, there's gross bodies, subtle bodies, and causal bodies. Yes. And those bodies are forms of mass energy. Yes. So if you take the complexification of gross form that you see in, for example, natural science evolutionary theory where you have atoms, molecules, cells, then you have the early forms of organisms without a neural net, then organisms with a neural net, then organisms with a reptilian brain stem, and then with a limbic system, and then with a neocortex. At each of those levels of complexification of gross form, there is an emergence of a subtler form of energy. Yes. And that's what gets interesting, because then you have these whole subtle realms of mass energy, oh. and those appear to be the media through which Bardo realms, survival of gross oh, physical I tell you, occurs. I tell you, Ken, this is so super hot right now. Let me just talk to you. Uh, night before last, I, at this meditation group, there was a presence and an energy in the room that you could cut with a knife. It was unbelievable. And it reminded me again of these, the mystery of what goes on in the subtle realm. Uh, and now Baker has told me recently that he's never told anyone, but that he, in his intensest scene, starts to see these forms and these auras around people. Now, you know, there's been a lot of woo-woo in this department in New Age literature, but this is from Baker. It's a different deal. Oh, I believe it's definitely the case. And, and, and the stuff he tells me about the what he calls esoteric Zen that is not in any book, yeah. but that's passed along through transmission uh, where you start to see this and it can help you in being a good teacher to uh, your students. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, Mike, I've got in this volume two that I've been telling you about, what I actually do is I take the evolutionary tree of gross form that I just gave a run through of that science, for example, support the whole notion of organisms with neural nets and reptilian brain stems and the limbic system and so on. And if you actually draw that tree out, you can draw concentric circles of increasingly subtler energies. And the evidence for those, I sort of draw all those together and then come up with four hypotheses that relate as far as I can tell, all the known forms of subtle energies, including astral, etheric, T fields, L fields, and causal fields, into this whole spectrum in the upper right quadrant of how you view third-person, concrete matter energies from the very gross 
forms of matter energy to the very subtlest causal forms do you get any of energy. Do you get any predictions or do you get any deductions from making that move? Because I think you might. I think so. One of the things I've been doing is working with some of the people that are actually involved in the technologies of subtle energies like Claris Technologies. And they've actually gone back in the laboratory using some of these theories and started to produce technologies for inducing these very subtle energies. And we can talk about that sometimes. It's really exciting. Well, well, listen, Ken, I'd like to present that to our survival group uh, this spring because we're also, now I know you've been, a, you've done some of the best criticism of the premature ejaculations of physicists and mystics you know, from <laughs> the Capra days, but we have Saul Paul Sirog at the last one, and he's going to come to the next one, because can the latest in string theory and membrane theory, etc., uh, I tell you, um, this is a flirtation made in heaven between these, that level of physics and the subtle body talk. I'm not... I know all the ways you can, uh, people leap to premature conclusions. Mike, it's real simple. I don't have any trouble with that. Here's where I disagree with them. Most of them want to take those forms of, let's just call it string subtle energy, just to give it a name, the, yeah. whatever physics is. And they want to plug that straight into some sort of implicate ground that's equated with spirit. And, and I think that is deeply confused. Right? Oh, that's, you're, yes, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. But here's what I do. I think, I think what they're dealing with is the very, very most fundamental reaches of physical energy runs right into, not God directly, but the whole astral, etheric, chronic level of energy. Amen, brother. And, that, and then I think that's exactly right. But, but that's, you know, Amen, that's brother. level one it's energy it's it's running simple. into level two energy, and there are five or six levels of energy above it before you get to direct realization of causal fields. Beautiful. I mean, that's hitting it right on the head. But it's that's important a, stuff, though, isn't it? That the fact that they're even doing that is, uh, you know, fantastic. Well, it is interesting what they're coming up with. I'm, but listen, this subtle energies thing oh, is, it's amazing is very, very interesting. And... Um, I tell you, it comes into play, Ken, incredibly. For example, today we're doing this interview around the supernormal cooking. <laughs> and, and there's a doctrine among chefs. I, I heard it first from my mother, who was truly a world-class cook. I mean it. Of effluvia. Effluvia is some sort of prana-like substance that, uh, that great cooks in their inspired moments imbue their dishes with. I love it. And this guy was a top chef in a couple of restaurants, and one of the phenomena he noticed was that there were certain nights when this kitchen he was working in had a lethal hostility backstage, uh, which can develop in these the heat of the battle backstage. Negative effluvia? Uh, yes, and what, <laughs> and, and what would happen? He said it happened after it happened two times where you had a massive outbreak of what was thought to be tomaine poisoning in the restaurant. <laughs> But the health department could find no germ. <laughs> the first time, he wondered. But the second time, he saw that it was this lethal hostility. Now, ironically, the food tasted wonderful. <laughs> but, it's, but it's this sort of thing. I tell you, there's that energy again, this subtle energy. Now, Baker tells me, he loves that phrase, that as you meditate, you make more and more royal jelly. <laughs> And how this royal jelly then spreads out over places and, you know, these fields that linger. And there's a lure of this. 
So, you know, this subtle energy thing uh, is a hot subject. Well, you know, even if you look at the great wisdom traditions like Vedanta, there's a abbreviated, simplified form. There's nonetheless an incredibly sophisticated understanding of the relation of mind and body and consciousness and energies. And in the Vedanta, for example, the reason that they have gross, subtle, and causal bodies, and those are really bodies, those are mass energy that describe as energies, and they're gross energies, subtle energies, energies and causal energies, Tibetan Buddhists call it gross, subtle, and very subtle energies, but those three main bodies are the correlates to three main states of consciousness, which are waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. And those are correlated with the three bodies of Buddha, as you know, Nirmanakaya, gross body, Sambhogakaya, subtle body, and Dharmakaya, emptiness, formless, or causal body. And so the great beauty about this is that every mind has a body so that you have gross body minds, subtle body minds, and causal body minds, but the subtle body mind can, in a sense, transmigrate and therefore it can separate from the gross body mind, which it does at death, for example. See, now that phrase right there nails it. It's, it a, subtle, it it's a subtle body mind. Exactly. Exactly. And, exactly. and so it's, uh, it's, as you often do the thing, I've turtles all the way up and turtles exactly. all the way down. Exactly. And in my scheme, it's, there's a left hand and a right hand quadrant all the way up and all the way down. In the right Amen. Hand. Yeah. Right hand are the bodies, whether they're gross, subtle, or causal, and the left hand are the states and stages of consciousness. And it's wonderful because Tantra, you know better than anybody, was prefaced on the notion that you can reach higher altered states of consciousness by also manipulating or getting in touch with altered bodies or energies, subtle energies. And exactly. And this is what happens all the time in sports where you have the weirdest asanas. The golf swing is one of the weirdest asana uh, that has ever been invented by the human race. Because it's, it's not biologically adaptive. But yet, they do it out there, these 20 million golfers in America, and then they tell me their experiences. And I've been hearing these things for 30 years. And for me not to go out and tell the world this would show me to be one of the worst cowards that ever walked <laughs> the face of the earth. But they're exercising something with tremendous focus and recollection when they play wholeheartedly. Absolutely. And it does something to their energy body and something separates out enough so that they can discern it and they make enough royal jelly and by God this stuff happens. And effluvia. And the effluvia. <laughs> all the effluvia. It's all over the joint. Well, you know, um, Ken, at the Aurobindo Ashram, the preferred Upanishad, because of Aurobindo, was the Taittiriya Upanishad with the five koshas. It's beautiful. And I think of all the Upanishads, that one spells it out the most beautifully, and that's why I love the closing line, and the illumined soul goes up and down these worlds, assuming any form it likes, eating any food it desires, chanting, oh, wonderful, oh, wonderful, oh, wonderful. Oh, that's beautiful. And that going up and down the ladder of existence with increasing freedom, to me, is one way to picture this integral transformation, this integral adventure, if you will, that we're involved in here. Well, the beautiful part about a lot of those psycho-spiritual models and the wisdom traditions and the reason that even as we want to try to continue to move forward, you always want to check bases with these guys because they were so profound and so beautiful in what they were doing. And right. That gross body-mind, subtle body-mind, and causal body-mind is really a beautiful conception. And yeah. as you say, they never forgot, though, that there was 
both Turiya, or the witness of those three yeah. bodies, and in Turiyatita, which was one taste, or oneness with all of those bodies. And so every person goes through these cycles every 24 hours. In the waking state, you're very much aware of the gross body mind. And then as you go to sleep at night, the gross body mind phenomenologically dissolves. Yeah. And you're in a subtle body mind with subtle energies, uh, images, archetypal visions, and so on. And then in deep dreamless sleep, you shed the subtle body mind and you are nothing but a causal body mind, a formless bliss ananda. And then witnessing all of those, is Atma, the uh, transcendental self, Turiya, and it's the witness of all states, so the one who's liberated is one who witnesses waking dream and deep sleep states. Yeah. Now, which is why Ramana Maharshi used to catch people off guard and say, that which is not present in deep dreamless sleep is not real. Because the only thing that's present in all three states is the self. Yeah. And in that's very, a, that you can't, that is an ultimate the kind of model. I mean... It covers uh, a lot of bases, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You know, the one... I th totally, that's the model in which my practice and uh, my vision has rested ever since the early exposure to Aurobindo. And Turatito, which is you're the oneness with the self, with all of those forms. And that was what yes. Aurobindo and what you have talked about most, probably. Absolutely. Now, I'm open to that, you, that that model itself can be unpacked further, which I think you and I are doing. Let me give you the one little sort of correction I make on that. If the traditions were not very good on contextual backgrounds and cultural colorings, and, and, and they couldn't be because for most of the great sages in those cultures, there were a whole lot of other cultures they were aware of. Well, they, you know, but most of them hadn't traveled more than 20 miles from where they were born. Exactly. Ramana Maharshi never moved. Exactly. So they're not real strong on the lower quadrants, but like you say, the essentials are right on the money in a certain way. Vedanta had not only the notion of states of consciousness, the waking, dreaming, deep sleep were just three examples, and the bodies of consciousness, which are gross, subtle, and causal bodies, but they also understood stages or levels or structures, and those are the koshas, the five levels. Yeah, right. That, ha that are there as well. So it's a little encapsulated model that has stages, states, and bodies. I you mean, know, it, it, yeah, it's they awesome had it in that respect, in that very fundamental respect, they had it right. Yeah, they got that stuff is just so right on the money, and obviously we've added a whole lot of details to it, but by God, the essentials are right there, and it's really just amazing. Yeah, I mean, now, because now when you come around like we have uh, to all these separate lines of development, right. um, now when I look at, I'm going to move from 12 to 13 or 14 sets of attributes, um, um, it becomes front and center yep. that the all quadrant is also all lines. All lines there's, because some people, I mean, you know, as, as you keep telling us, and it's just absolutely right, a person could be very developed in one line and very undeveloped in another line. Exactly. In fact, that's the way it is with everybody. Oh, I, the, the list of my undeveloped lines are legion. <laughs> well, you know, and, and once you get, you know, because you can extend the lines model to all these attributes and eventually, you know, you can parse it out to hundreds. I mean, it's countless, perhaps. I, 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 Mike, I think the 12 or 14 major ones that you're working with, as far as I can tell, every single one of them are relatively independent lines or modules. Now, that's another, uh, that's another conversation I want to have with you. You can parse it out this way, that way, or the other way, but what's wonderful about it is that no matter how you parse it out, there's always a tremendous wealth of supernormal expressions of that line. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And uh, it, it doesn't matter how you parse it. You know, there's nothing to matter with those schemes. It's no, no. People don't think that those cover everything in a certain sense. It's like you're saying, because yeah. under those circumstances, you miss all these other marvelous nuances and differentiations and everything. Yeah. And so the I trick see. is to hit upon particularly what you're trying to do when it comes to metanormal and supernormal capacities is to hit upon a classification scheme that doesn't agglutinate too much, right? but on the other hand, isn't so damn complex as to be virtually worthless. Exactly. And I see, I think this is worth, I mean, human nature is so complex. And, uh, you know, Einstein was declared a moron by at least two teachers in grammar school, you know. <laughs> a moron, they said. I mean, and you, you, well, you know what I'm saying. Well, sure. And so have you come up with a scheme that you're happy with and doesn't, and doesn't itself uh, turn people into morons? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, uh, behind, behind every scheme you're saying, there, with every scheme there stands a whole legion of newly designated morons. Correct. And, yeah. all we're, and all we're trying to do, of course, is, is hold our own schemes lightly. But that doesn't mean don't make the schemes. The problem Amen. Is, yeah. Amen. The oh, problem no. is like psychological Amen. schemes are like you say, these people are monsters that take them to be some sort of you know, actual ontological entities out there that you can club people over the head with. And, uh, you know, I've been really careful, God, at least in the last five or six books of mine, to say, look, a stage uh, in psychological models, a stage is like standing on the edge of the Amazon River and saying, how many waves in this river do you see? But waves or stages aren't some concrete thing like steps on a ladder or rungs in a ladder or floors in a building. They're right. just conceptual constructs. And as long as we hold them lightly, they can be useful if they're very carefully right. applied. Well, amen. And, you know, the, one of the most interesting things is when I get into any field where there's real development or excellence, there is a lore. There's a lore in there, often never expressed, of the marks of progress. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. example, among coaches, there's so many marks. Let's say fitness. I could rattle off 15 or 20 things I look for in somebody, and I can, in a few minutes, tell their level of fitness. Right. Um, and the same, let's say, among great cooks, the same with uh, uh, Dick Baker talking about proficiency and not just meditation per se, but different aspects of the unfoldment of human nature that occurs in uh, Zen training. But everywhere, a lore of marks of progress. So everywhere, there are lines of development. It's simply that each person is so fucking idiosyncratic yep. that to expect them to go A, B, C, like a, a German march drill, is absurd. And also, like you say, I bet if you actually ran out the number of lines, it might be just nearly infinite. I mean, I don't know how we could yeah. actually put a limit on it because there are just so many ways to interact with the universe. Exactly. And each one of those, you can continue to show learning in Exactly. It. And that's all a developmental curve is, is you learn from yesterday. Exactly. Now, if we take away the notion of lines of development, we really make this a boring place. It's just not, it, it just, you know, maps are nothing but maps. And, but nonetheless, it's better to have a more accurate map than a completely fucked up map. A, well, amen. And, <laughs> and our maps are, I have to argue that our maps are getting better. I, and, oh, uh, I think they are. And I think you're really helping that process, Ken. I, I, I think the, each time you make one of these moves, it, uh, the map of the continent of human nature gets a little clearer here. Oh, uh, what hopes? 
Well, see, you can think of, well, see, we're like Lewis and Clark. We, we're heading up the Missouri there, and now you pretty know soon Lewis, we're going to get to the Missouri Falls. You know that Meriwether Lewis is, a, is an ancestor of mine. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the brilliant one that shot himself. <laughs> well, he listen, those guys. I, I recently read this book about them and saw this documentary that Ken Burns did. God, what a story. Oh, it's a great story. And Lewis really was a pretty amazing guy. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, fantastic. How are you descended from him? He's somewhere like great, 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 great uncle or something. He has a great uh, set of genes to have in there, man. <laughs> He was something else. Yeah, this, they're pretty, pretty amazing stuff. We're all kind of uh, intrepid explorers on the edge of uh, the unknown. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them. Which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here on our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world.